our stay tonight, I have one swift announcement. We are planning on taking a trip and a tour of Israel in the spring of 2019. And why I'm bringing that up tonight is because we have an interest sign-up uh, out here tonight. And so if you're at all interested in the trip, uh, think that's something you might like to consider and would like to know more, um, go ahead before you leave tonight and uh, give us your name and your email address and we'll be in touch. Uh, one of the reasons why those uh, tours are really valuable is because it changes who you are as a reader of the Bible. Um, tonight we're going to look at the parceling out of the land of Israel, which means a very long list of borders around places you've never heard of, cities that you've never been to, um, even trying to keep a hold of how it lays out on the nation of Israel can be a challenge. But I will tell you that uh, after going to Israel three years ago, when I read this list, there's still lots of foreign things, but I have a general feel for the nation of Israel. Over the course of the tour, we'll start near Tel Aviv on the Mediterranean, and then we'll move up towards the Sea of Galilee. We'll reach out into the northern valley uh, region above the Sea of Galilee and the east where Damascus and the Ten Cities were, and then we'll come down and follow the Jordan River all the way to the Dead Sea and cut over onto Jerusalem. And once you've done that, you kind of have the spine of the nation of Israel. You have a feel for the orientation of how, how the country works. Um, and that's, that's true in a lot of places. Uh, as we get started tonight, I find that there are two types of people. There are the people who, when they read a novel that includes a map, look at the map, and those who don't. And that's not really a judgment. To be fully honest, I'm in a those who don't category. I have a very nice copy of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know, with a nice binding and a fold-out map, which I have folded out a total of once. And never once have I felt compelled while reading through that book to stop and go back and trace the journey of our, uh, of our hobbits and friends. Uh, I just, I'm just not that type of a person. I'm the same way, same way with the maps in the back of the Bible. However, it is worth keeping in mind that the original readers of the Bible had a mental map that they always employed while they were reading. How different would it be tonight if instead of talking about places like Tola and Jer uh, and Jericho, if we were talking about how, uh, you know, the boundary of Washington State follows the Columbia River, right? Where you have this threshold in mind for what that means and you can trace it for yourself. There's so many places where opening up a map and putting in the effort, the geography lesson, if you will, will change the way you read a story. For example, when Israel is leaving Egypt, they end up at the Red Sea because God takes them in a different direction, and it's literally leading them into a dead end, okay? And you can watch this on a map, and you go, that doesn't make sense. There's a main road to Israel right here, and God completely avoids it, okay? And so an uh, somebody who's familiar with the area who's reading this for the first time is going, wait, what is going on here? And that's exactly the point. It's attention grabbing. Uh, consider when Jesus uh, passes through Jericho. Now, that doesn't really mean anything significant, but if you look at a map, uh, as you come down the Jordan River and you get to the Dead Sea and then cut over to Jerusalem through this very mountainous country, Jericho is the only road going. 
But it explains in John chapter 4 that the Jews would completely avoid Samaria, which is right in that same area, and go around an entirely different way. And if you look at a map, it's a big detour just to avoid the Samaritans, okay? Um, Here's one of my favorites. The book of Amos begins with uh, these prophecies, and they're all the same. He speaks and he says, For three transgressions, even for four, I will bring judgment on Damascus. And then I will bring judgment on Amnon. And then I will bring judgment on Moab. And if you follow the list through a map, you'll watch as he draws a circle, starting in the northeast corner, around the nation of Israel, addressing every one of their border enemies. And then suddenly, he says, for three transgressions and for four, I will bring judgment on Israel. And then finally, I will bring judgment on Judah. And if you think about the way this would have been given in the first place with the prophet Amos, you know, standing up in a street and, uh, you know, proclaiming this out, they're hearing these names of these people who have been hostile to them for so long, Edom. And they're like, yeah, that's right. And it's really just tightening a noose around Amos's real message, which is a message of judgment for Israel and Judah. And we miss those things because it's foreign to us. And that's the value of a map, right? Uh, I don't know the last time you looked at a real map of Seattle, because you don't need to, right? But when you travel, to another state, to another country even, suddenly maps become really valuable, okay? You read the Bible as a tourist. It's not your land. It's not your country. It's not your culture. It's not your place. And so it's really worthwhile uh, sometimes to crack open a map and, and do the due diligence. Now, as we get started tonight, we're going to pick up in Joshua chapter 12. Um, sorry, in 13 tonight. And we need to recognize that everything we'll cover this week, hopefully this doesn't scare you away, but most of what we'll cover next week is going to be this. It's going to be tracing out the territory of these 12 tribes of Israel. The first thing I want to point out to you tonight um, is that when an author writes a book, the things that interest the author or the purpose he has in writing it shapes how much time he spends on particular material. This is another thing that's good to know in studying the Bible. For example, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, many scholars believe was initially a single book in two parts, okay? Kind of like the Lord of the Rings is a single book in three parts. And interestingly enough, Luke all the way through Acts is exactly the great threshold for how much you would write front and back on a single scroll, Because remember, you're not dealing with a codex like we use for books. You're dealing with a rolled-up, ongoing scroll. And they discovered pretty easily in the ancient world how big was too big. And Luke, as an author, uses the entire territory of the recommended size. And so it becomes really striking then that Luke decides to repeat things. Like take, for example, when he tells the entire story in Acts chapter 10 of Peter on the rooftop. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, I've never eaten anything unclean. And Cornelius sending messengers and them all getting saved. And then he tells the same story in the next chapter, word for word, as Peter says, this is what happened to me yesterday. Okay, now that's a repetition either way, but when you've only got so much space and you go, this is worth telling again. He also does it with Paul's testimony. 
the story of Paul's conversion, which is told in the book of Acts three times. Okay? That shows us priority. It shows us emphasis. Okay? Now, in the book of Joshua, the part that we're most familiar with are the battles, Jericho and Ai and the treaty with the Gibeonites, these types of things. But that takes up less territory than the material we're going to look at tonight. For the original author and the original audience of Joshua, this is the good stuff. What we covered was the prologue. Okay? And so it's easy to read over this and go, this doesn't seem to be very valuable to me. And to some degree, that's probably true. But that's not the same thing as saying this doesn't seem valuable at all. Okay? What we learn here is, is about, uh, about what the priorities to Joshua were. And they're built around the land. Consider with me once again. What we're talking about when we talk about the promised land, right? Just think about the language. It's the land of promise. 440 years before the events of these chapters, God had traced out this land to a single man who had no children and said, this is the place I'm going to give to your descendants. And this is the place where you will be a kingdom of priests and a light to the world. And this is the place where I will accomplish my salvation. This was so significant to the descendants of Abraham that Abraham's son Isaac, his son Jacob, his son Joseph, Jacob and Joseph both die in the land of Egypt with the promise unfulfilled. And they say, don't bury me. Don't bury me in Egypt. Jacob, they sneak into a foreign land where none of them are living and bury out there. And Joseph, he's embalmed in the practices of the Egyptians. And he's just hanging out in some guy's basement until eventually God leads Egypt out of the Exodus and we find them carrying his coffin because he wants to be buried in Israel. Okay? That shows us a couple of things. One that's really significant is faith. Joseph's like, I'm dead, but God is still alive. He's faithful. He's going to keep his promises. So you hold on to my corpse and you wait until you can bury me in the land of Israel. But it also shows the longing and the excitement and the importance of these things. And don't forget, even for us, that this land that's being distributed tonight is the land where God became man. Jesus traveled so little as far as we know in his lifetime. Just in this little tiny nation of Israel, which is the size of New Jersey, it's small. This is where he spent all of his time. This is where he made the focus of his mission. And it all begins right here with the dealing of the land. And so what we have tonight, and what we'll touch on tomorrow, is the distribution of the land. And so what we've seen so far is Israel as a united nation under a single general, Joshua, has conquered the land, broken the spine of the enemy territory in the land, but there's still work to do. And at this point, they divide the territory, not just dividing the spoils, but dividing the work, as we'll see. So pick up here in chapter 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains very, uh, yet very much land to possess. Okay. So first thing, notice here uh, that Joshua in his own life is in his 80s now. Okay. Um, 
he's getting up there in age. He's been operating as the general. He's just fulfilled this campaign, which probably took at least five and maybe up to as much as seven years, the chapters that precede this. The recognition here that God makes in speaking to Joshua and saying, Joshua, you're old. In fact, you're advanced in age, which is just another way of saying you're old, right? Is because there's more work than he has days. That's the recognition is that Joshua is going to die, but the work needs to continue. And unlike we've seen in the past, God isn't going to raise up another Joshua. Instead, like I said, they're going to divide the work between the tribes, but the work is not yet finished. He says there's very much land to possess, verse 2. This is the land that yet remains, all the region of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Sihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ascalon, Gath, and Ekron. Now, in your Bibles, that's probably a parenthetical. And the reason it's a parenthetical is because probably here, this isn't part of the statement that God made about the land to be conquered. It's an aside because eventually these five cities, read the book of Judges, are going to become significant. Okay? And so we have this real quick introduction to what's still to come in the story. We have foreshadowing, if you will. He continues here in those of the Avim, verse 4, in the south, all the lands of the Canaanites, the Miranites, uh, uh, the Mira that belonged to the Sidonians, to Aphek, the boundary of the Amorites, the land of the Gabalites, and all of Lebanon towards the sunrise from Balgad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath. Now, you probably can't tell in reading that, but he starts at the extreme south of Israel and moves all the way to the north, okay? And so you shouldn't think of this as if... Um, Israel has conquered half the land and still has half yet to go. They've conquered across the land and there's still pockets of enemies throughout. That's what this list is laying out. It finishes here. It says, verse 6, All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mizpah, Maim, even the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Okay, And so there's a promise given here. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to continue the warfare. Joshua may die, but I'm not dead. Okay? And think of this, because most of Israel is younger than Joshua. Remember? Right? Joshua and Caleb are the only ones left, only ones remaining of their generation who didn't die in the wilderness. So everyone else is about 40 years younger than them. And so when we talk about Joshua as leader and him about to die, it's a younger generation leadership of Joshua and Moses before him is all they've ever known. But God lays out in the front here, I'm going to continue the fight. The methodology is changing. And he says, your job, Joshua, is not to live longer. Your job is to, look at uh, halfway through verse 6 there, only allot the land of Israel for an inheritance as I've commanded you. There's two big pieces of the work that God called Joshua to. Lead them in fighting, divvy out the land. And so he says, it's time for phase two, because you don't have a lot of life yet. And he says, verse seven, now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. Now pause. Okay, the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. First off, why is there a half tribe? There's a half-tribe because of Jacob's 12 sons, 
Joseph passes on his parcel of the inheritance to his, uh, to his uh, sons. Jacob actually passes them on to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay? And so they're each given equal space in the land, so that actually makes 13. But, as we'll find out in just a second, the tribe of Levi doesn't inherit any land at all. So that brings us back to 12. But nonetheless, Ephraim and Manasseh are known as the half-tribes. Okay? And so the nine and the half-tribes is the second question. Why, why is it nine and a half? Because the other two and a half have already received their inheritance. They were given it by Moses on the east side of the Jordan. Uh, Matt, if you want to throw up that map, just to give you guys a feel here, I know you can't read anything. It doesn't really matter. I just want to draw your attention to a few things. So you'll see that white circle at the north end that's relatively small. That's the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus did most of his ministry. And then although you can't see it, between Manasseh and Gad, all the way down to the big white body of water at the bottom, that's the Jordan River. Okay? And that big body of water at the bottom is the Dead Sea. And then the body of water that's really big to the left is the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? And so the two and the half tribes are all east of Sea of Galilee, and the Jordan River, okay? And so when we read about Joshua crossing the Jordan River in the beginning of the book of Joshua, he's coming into Israel from the east side, and they've already given as an inheritance the two and a half tribes to Gad, to Reuben, and to Manasseh, this territory that's not in the promised land proper. It's promised land adjacent, okay? And they had settled for that. They had decided, this is good enough for us. This is really good land. Our families are already here. Let's let them settle. We'll still come and fight with the rest of Israel, but we'll take this as our inheritance. That means, mathematically, that there's only nine and a half allotments left to handle. Okay, So that's why it mentions it here. Because this is a Hebrew book, before it allows us to move on, it reviews what I just told you. The allotment for the two and a half tribes, what's on the east of the Jordan. So verse 8, with the other half tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses the servant of the Lord gave them. Okay. Now another reason why this needs to be recorded and is repeated over and over again is because it's very possible to envision a time when Israel as a nation would go, you don't have any portion with us. You're not even in the promised land, right? In fact, this becomes such a concern that later in the book of Joshua, the two and a half tribes try and do something about it and build a memorial altar just to say, we are also Israel. And it almost causes a civil war, but we'll get there, okay? But nonetheless, they recognize this same fear that someday you'll say to our children, you're not really part of Israel because you're on the wrong side of the river, okay? And so it's repeated in Numbers, it's repeated in Deuteronomy, it's repeated here that this is the land that was given and why, okay? So what land was this? Verse 9, from Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and the city that's in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Mibda, as far as Debon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the boundary of the Ammonites, and Gilead, and the region of the Geshrites, and the Machathites, and all of Mount Hermon, and all Bashan to, uh, to Sekela. All the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth, in Adri, he alone was left of the remnant of the Rephim. 
these Moses had struck and driven out. Now, if you want to read this story, you've got to go all the way back to the first time right before Israel is supposed to enter the land, before they reject that, before the wandering in the wilderness. And what happens is, on their approach, a couple of non-Canaanite tribes under these two kings, Sihon and Og, attack Israel. And God delivers these enemies over to Israel, and that's when these two and a half tribes say, actually, this is pretty good. We'll stay here, thank you very much. But there's a reminder of these victories as well as a drawing out of their territories. And then verse 13, Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Makathites, but Geshur and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Now, side note, we're going to see a similar statement almost every time following a tribe's allotment. And it's not a present tense condition, because we already know that, right? We already read in the first half of this chapter, there's still work to be done. This is moving forward in time. To this day, the work remains unfinished. Instead of doing what God had called them to do in being a force of judgment in the midst of Canaan and eradicating the Canaanites for a litany of different reasons, every single tribe doesn't go the distance. It's important for us to understand because that's what leads to the book of Judges. Because the work is left unfinished and so what happens is these pockets of enemies rise up and enslave and ensnare Israel. In fact, they become a constant problem in Israel. Now, side note, if you go back and read the Deuteronomy, what is the warning that Moses gives them? If you fail to drive out the inhabitants of the land, they will be a thorn in your side and they will lead you astray into idolatry, which is exactly what happens. And so even though the tone of the book of Joshua is almost entirely victorious, there are these allusions to something lesser, something worse. And we'll see over and over again, but they failed to drive out the inhabitants. And so instead here, instead of driving them out, Um, we see here uh, that they uh, dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. And once again, we find that statement, I think, a dozen times in Joshua to this day. And it references the fact that the author here is looking back on history and saying it's still the case even now. Um, And once again, I would suggest most likely that the author of Joshua is Samuel. And so that brings us past the book of Judges, which I believe he also authored, into his own books, which bear his name, um, and lead up to the coming of David. And so he's looking back over history and telling the whole story based on what's clearly extensive written records. Okay? So, verse 14, to the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance The offerings by fire to the Lord of God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. Most likely the reason that occurs here is mathematical. Okay, wait a minute, what about, I thought it was nine and a half and two and a half, there's also this this tribe of Levi, and so it's handled there. We'll see that it recurs in just a minute. Verse 15, Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben according to their clans. Okay, so we've already seen the whole of the eastern Uh, eastern inheritance. Now it goes clan by clan. And so the first one it deals with is Reuben. So their territory was from Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, the city that's in the middle of the valley and all the tableland in Medeba 
uh, with Heshbon and all its cities that are the tableland, Debon and Bamoth Jael, and Beth Baal Maon. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice here. First, the first list we saw was a border list. It just traced the outside of the land. What we have now is a city list. These are all the places of note within the land, okay? The second thing I want you to notice is as you read over the names of these cities, there's a couple of things to learn. And one of them is you will see the names of Canaanite gods in the city's names, okay? And so, for example, there we just hit Bamoth Baal. Baal is one of these great gods of the Canaanites. And you'll see more of that uh, throughout here because that's where these cities come from. Most of them actually end up being renamed and will be told often that it was this city, but now we call it that, uh, as you would expect. Verse 18, Jahaz and Kedmoth and Mepha and Kirthraim and Sibma and Zareth Sharar on the hill of the valley and Beth Peor and the slopes of Pisgah and Beth Jemisoth, that is, all the cities of the tableland and all the kingdom of Sihon, the king of the Amorites who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated uh, with the leaders of Midian, Evi and Rechem and Zer, and Hur and Reba, the princes of Sion who lived in the land. Balaam, also the son of Baor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of the slain. Now remember why that's significant to a Jewish audience. It's because he's the one, back in the book of Numbers, who was hired to curse the people of Israel. And even though he really wanted the paycheck, God wouldn't let him do it. And so he comes up with, uh, with a compromise. And he goes, look, I can't curse the people of Israel, but I know how you can get God to curse them. Just take your most attractive women, make them scantily clad, and have them go to the borders of Israel's camp and invite them into pagan worship. And so Israel just follows into this sex-filled rebellion, and God brings judgment on them. But that's because of the suggestion, we're told in the book of Numbers, of Balaam. And so it's appropriate here that he, he dies, even though he's not actually of these people, he's a Babylonian, but he dies with these people. Um, and so it's pointed out here for us. In verse 23, the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben according to their clans with their cities and villages. And then, verse 24, Moses gave an inheritance also to the tribe of Gad, to the people of Gad according to their clans. Their territory was Jazer and all the cities of Gilead, half the land of the Ammonites to Aor, which is east of Rabbah, from Heshbon to Ramath uh, Mizpah, to Betanim from Manahem to the territory of Debir. And in the valley of Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Succoth, and Zaphon and the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, having the Jordan as a boundary to the lower end of the Sea of Chinnereth, eastward beyond the Jordan. This is the inheritance of the people of Gad, according to their clans with their cities and villages. Now, even though these locations don't mean much to you, it is significant that if you go through and you make comparisons of the list, you will find cities repeated in shared boundaries. Okay. And so what I want to just point out, just as a side note, uh, is that there is a consistency to these details. Okay. This is not like, um, okay, so when, when they started making films of the Harry Potter movies, the author, J.K. Rowling, knew how or where things were going to happen later in the series that hadn't been talked about yet. And so there was a danger of a discontinuity between the Hogwarts that we would see on screen and 
where it would need to be in a couple of years. And so they didn't want to re-edit Hogwarts in years to come, so she drew them a map. Not just a map of the Hogwarts that was, but a Hogwarts that would be, so that they wouldn't uh, screw up her plans for her unwritten books, okay? Uh, that's impressive. It's one of the things that I love most about an author is when they create this fantasy land, or like Tolkien, when he creates entire languages and cultures and archaeological digs and history, right, to make it believable. But what we have here is something even more significant than that. It's actual places in actual history, and when the author says in Joshua over and over again, and it's this way to this day, it means you can walk to the border and you can trace out these lines. You can go on a pilgrimage of the boundaries of Gad and find it to be as it is because we're talking about history. I'll give you just one more example. Lamez is an incredible book. But if you read it in its full, unedited, there are a couple of sections that are a slog to get through. Two in particular. One has to do with the daily happenings of a French convent, which is 50 pages. And the other has to do with an entire laying out of everything that happens in the Battle of Waterloo. Okay? Now, I'll be honest. When I read that book, I had heard of the Battle of Waterloo. I still don't know anything about it. Okay? Uh, but it is laid out detail by detail. Why is it so much more detailed than the rest of Les Mis? Okay. One, it's because, because Victor Hugo was a historian. These are the things that he loved. You know, he's the type of guy who could have had little miniature soldiers in his house and spent years building up. He's the type of guy who would have built a costume and gone to a recreation of Waterloo to act it out with other enthusiasts, okay? But the second reason why it's so detailed is because unlike the rest of the book, it actually happened, okay? It's history. And so here, there's this emphasis on details, and even not knowing the names, you will find boundary cities shared between the nation or the tribes that have boundaries because they really did have these boundary lines drawn through these cities. So we've seen here Reuben and then Gad, and then finally, we have the half-tribe Manasseh, verse 29. Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was allotted to the half-tribe of the people in Manasseh according to their clans. Their region extended from Manahem through all of Bashan, the whole kingdom of Og, the king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jer. Now pause. The towns of Jer is not uh, referring to towns that exist by that name in this time, but actually towns that will exist in the story of the book of Judges. Okay. It's easy to remember some of the judges' names. We have Samson, we have Gideon, uh, we have Barak, right, and Deborah. Uh, but there's a whole list of judges that are harder to remember. Jer is one of them. Okay. And so interestingly enough, we read about these cities and where they come from and, and their story in the book of Judges in chapter 10. So look at verse 3 of Judges chapter 10. After him, Tola, after him arose Jer, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath Jer, which literally translated means the cities of Jer, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Canaan. Okay? Now when we read here in Joshua, it says all the towns of Jer, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, okay? We know because of the book of Judges, 30 of those 60 cities are the towns of Jer, and then there's the other 30, okay? Um, but nonetheless, we will see if we read closely 
these references to what's to happen. Tonight, uh, Jair is not the only judge of the judges of Israel who will be named. Okay, but it continues on in here, verse 31. And half of Gilead and Ashtaroth and Edri, the cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, these were allotted the people of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for the half of the people of Machir, according to their clans. And then we have a summary statement. These are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is, in their, is their inheritance, just as he said to them. And so there's this repetition here, and Levi is mentioned again, but he is mentioned in a different way. First it said it was the burnt offerings that are his inheritance, and here it says it's the Lord himself that is the inheritance of Levite. And so you have a broadening out of not just their role as priests among Israel for the service of the Israelites, but also that because of that, they have a relatively intimate relationship with God. Remember, it's one Levite, one living Levite at a time and one alone that actually goes into the most holy place, into the presence of God. And so it's not that they are in, inheritanceless. Okay, they just don't have an inheritance in the land because they have actually here something better. Read that again through the emphasis that we're talking about tonight. What does Joshua care about so much? The land. And yet the Levites, they don't have an inheritance in the land. They have something better. Okay. There's the Israel that God has promised, and then there's the God who promised Israel. Okay. And even here we find a prioritizing of these things. So, chapter 14, we finally move on to what is going to be the dividing of the land under Joshua for the remaining nine and a half tribes. Verse 1, these are the inheritance that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses, for the nine and a half tribes. Okay, so we're told here the method, and it says that the method is by lot. Okay, that explains why this was done not just by Joshua, but also by Eleazar, who is the high priest. Okay, and so we're told back in the book of Exodus uh, that the high priest wears a breastplate, and inside them is the mysterious Urim and Thummim. We don't know what they are, we, we barely even know what the words mean but we know that they were used in some sense to determine God's will, okay? And so when we read here, by the casting of lots, you can think of by the drawing of straws, okay? But we also find out that the uh, land is also distributed appropriately to the size of the tribes, okay? We don't have 12 tribes of equal membership. We have big tribes and we have little tribes. And even as you look at the map tonight, you'll see that there are big territories and there are little territories. Um, and so it seems here that the, the drawing by lot uh, may have involved which territory they chose, but the size of that territory was flexed based on need. We'll see more of that tonight. Okay, and then once again, this is only for the nine and a half tribes. Why? Verse three, Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, those are the half tribes, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for livestock and their substance. 
okay? And so we learn one last thing about the Levites here. It's not that they weren't given a place to live. They were given cities scattered across Israel and then the cities of refuge in particular uh, and pasture land around all the cities because their job was not just to serve at the temple but to teach the people of Israel the law. And so they lived throughout the land uh, and so each tribe gave up some of their land for them to live on. Verse 5, the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses, they allotted the land. Now one of the things we need to notice tonight that's intriguing is structural in nature, okay? Because we're just told that they allotted the land and it's over. Now we're going to revisit that and walk through the whole thing, but before he does, he chooses to tell a story about Caleb. The action pauses and this story is inserted even though it falls after the allotment that we're about to read it. So he says he, it was done, and then he's going to walk through the whole thing, but before he does, he enters the story of Caleb. In the same way, at the conclusion of all these things, once we get the final tribe's territory, we're going to see an allotment for Joshua. Okay? And in, uh, in biblical studies terms, we call this an inclusio. Okay? An inclusio is when you begin and end a passage in the same way. Sometimes you do it with the same phrase. Sometimes you do it with the same event. Or here, sometimes you do it with similar material. And what it acts like is a parenthesis, okay? And so here, Caleb is the open parenthesis to the allotments to the tribes. And Joshua is the closed parenthesis, okay? When authors do that, they are trying to connect the dots for us. They're trying to tie things together. So as we read Caleb's story, see if you can figure out why this is significant introductory material for what follows. Verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephna, the Kenizzite, said to him, now pause, when it says here that he's a Kenizzite, there's two possibilities there. Okay. First off, one of uh, Caleb's descendants, his great-great-grandson, his name is Kenna. So it may be that he's a Kenizzite, as in he's the son of a Kenna. And although we don't have record of his father or his grandfather or his great-grandfather, it's just tying those identities together. The other possibility is that he's not actually a son of Abraham at all. That he's from the Kenizzites, uh, and we do have a similarly named tribe in the area, and that when Israel leaves Egypt, he throws his lot in with Israel, as many do. He's part of the mixed multitude that moves along with Israel. Now, that would actually be very significant in the book of Joshua because we've seen a couple of foreigners who have thrown their lot in with Israel and trusted the God of Israel and become part of the inheritance. So we have Rahab. Right? Rahab is a Canaanite and a prostitute, but because she believes in the God of Israel, she comes into their inheritance and becomes part of the lineage that leads to the Messiah. Then we have the Gibeonites, who through their deception take up part in the land and actually are part of Israel's history throughout all the way to the coming of the Messiah. They become part of Israel, even though they're foreigners. So it may be what's significant about Caleb being a, Ke- a Kezanite here is once again, The surprisingly nationalistic book of Joshua points to something bigger than merely Israel, to a time to come when all the nations would be blessed through Israel like God promised Abraham, okay? I believe it's more likely, since he's got a grandson named Kenna, 
that it's actually just the son of Kenna, a descendant of Kenna. But it is at least possible that's what's going on, okay? So he comes, and he comes before the people of Israel, and he speaks to General Joshua, and he says, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. Caleb is the other elderly person, sole elderly person in Israel, right? He's also, as we'll see, in his 80s. He and Joshua were part of the two faithful spies who went into the land, and unlike the majority report, the other 10 said, God can give this if he wants to. And so rest of Israel rejects, but these two men and these two alone um, stand to receive the promised land. And so he goes back to that time and he says, remember what God said concerning you and me, verse seven. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And so he reminds them of that report and of those circumstances and the difference He says, they brought a report of fear. They made the people shake in their boots so they didn't enter in. But I reported what was in my heart. I was faithful. In verse 9, Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you wholly followed the Lord my God. Now, that's not actually recorded for us back in the book of Numbers. Apparently, this is a private conversation. Moses has said, and notice what he says, the land that you walked on, okay? Here's something to keep in mind that changes in Israel's history. The first time when they come to Kadesh Barnea, that's at the southern part of the land, okay? And so they're going to originally conquer Israel from the south, but after wandering in the wilderness to the east of Israel for 40 years, they end up entering from the side in the east. And so he's talking about the land that Moses promised him, which is part of this southern inheritance, the inheritance of Judah, if you're looking at a map. And so he says, uh, you and your children forever, because you wholly followed the Lord my God, verse 10. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years. Notice that five there? So at least five years, depending on how you count the two years uh, of, the, of the preparation for crossing into the promised land. Is that 42 years or is it 38 years plus two? So either here it's five years of battle or seven. That's where they get this number from. It's this verse. 45 years since that time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I'm this day 85 years old. And that's a Hebraism. He's not saying it's his birthday. He's just saying I'm 85 today and I might have been 85 yesterday. It doesn't matter. Um, 11, I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord had said. Now a couple of notes here. One of the primary facts that the majority reports brings back as being evidence they can't take the land involves these people, the Anakim, okay? The descendants of Anak, giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. But Caleb, even 40 years later, he's like, that's the territory I want, where the battle is the strongest, where the enemies are the biggest, the ones that everybody said, we cannot do this. 
here he operates in faith. And remember, second, that the land he's going to here is not a conquered land. It's a land to be conquered, okay? He's not saying, give me my spoils because I've been faithful. He's saying, give me my battles because God is good, okay? Now do you understand why maybe this might be the introduction to the rest? Caleb, unfortunately, just like he did with the ten spies, is going to stand in contrast to the other tribes who fail to drive out the inhabitants of the land. But he's presented here as an example, and the example is one that even in his old age, God is still capable of using him. I mean, if, if you're getting older yourself, just think about significantly this type of an attitude. Where at 85, he can say, there's still work for the Lord to do here. The Lord can still use me. And he doesn't settle for some sort of retirement-sized piece of God's will. The enemies he's going to conquer in his old age are the definitive, capital E, enemies. This will be the greatest victory of his life, and it's the last one. I think he's clearly here an example of faith. And the story is put here to point to all Israel. Because remember, even when it says, to this day, this hasn't happened, it's not too late. It's not too late for Israel to obey. And so Caleb is presented here as an encouragement, as an example. And so, verse 13, Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephthah, for an inheritance. Now, Hebron was one of the handful of fortified cities in the Promised Land. Jericho, Hebron, and Heshbon. I think that's right. I think that's the third one. Um, these were the places that were actually walled cities in the land. And so Joshua has already conquered this place, but apparently the, uh, the, um, the giants, the Anakim, are still in the general area. And so as you can imagine, and this is why Israel needs to split up their forces, as they're waging their war in the campaign in the south and then they move on to the north, what happens? People move back into the strongest places, Okay. And so that's what's gone on here. And Joshua gives him, as his inheritance, this fortress of a city. But it's not just going to be his fortress. First, he has to take it again. Okay. Uh, the Kenizzite, to this day, why? Because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, which, uh, side note, Kiriath is, a, is an Aramaic word for city. The city of Arba, and then we're told Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Okay. Now, now we move on to the inheritance, and this also has a significant uh, structure to it. Not only is it bordered by Caleb and Joshua's stories, but the primary emphasis here is on Judah and Manasseh. They get way more territory in the text than the other tribes who only get a paragraph each. Judah gets an entire chapter, Manasseh gets almost two. But if you look closely at the map up there, you'll see why. It's most of Israel that goes to Judah and Manasseh. Okay, all of that blue area in the bottom is Judah's territory. You notice there's a hole in the donut there, that's Simeon. As we'll see, they can't, they don't feel like they're strong enough to do something on their own, and so they just, they're just absorbed into Judah, okay? And then Manasseh, not only do they already have that top right pink area known as East Manasseh, but as we'll see tonight, they actually go, that's not enough land for us, and they begin to press into the promised land proper. And so all of that green area to the left of the Jordan there is also Manasseh's territory. 
And so the two together plus Judah, that's well over two-thirds of the land in its entirety. And so they're given most of the space up front okay, in the text. They also have more cities to list, and so it takes more time. Okay, so we begin with Judah in verse 1. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom to the wilderness of Zin at its farthest south. And the south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, which is what we know as the Dead Sea, out from the bay that faces southward. It goes southward to the ascent of Akrabim and passes along to Zin and goes up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, up to Adar, and turns to Karka, and passes along to Asmon, and goes by the brook of Egypt. So notice what we're doing here. We're tracing out the boundary of the land, and he's starting at the southernmost portion there that's not even actually fully on our map here, and he's drawing it along. And you can do this on a map. There's lots of places that we no longer know how to reference, but there's enough of them that we can effectively, just like a really difficult dot-to-dot, follow the pattern here and draw these boundaries even today um, based on the archaeology that we've done. And so it continues, verse 5, and the east boundary shall be the salt sea, that's the dead sea, to the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary on the north side runs from the bay of the sea to the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary goes up to Beth Hagla and passes along north Beth Arba. And the boundary goes up to the stone of Bohan, to the son of Reuben. Uh, and the boundary goes up to Debir from the valley of Achor, and so northward turning towards Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Aduman, which is on the south side of the valley, and the boundary passes along the waters of Enshemesh and ends at Enrogel. Then the boundary goes up to the valley of the son of Himam, at the southern shoulder of the Jebusites, that is Jerusalem. That's another aside, even when we get to the book of Joshua, or to the book of Judges, there's no Jerusalem. Even as we get into 1 Samuel, under Samuel, there's no Jerusalem. It's not until David takes out the Jebusites that he takes their city, Salem, and turns it into Jerusalem. But there's a reference point here because Jerusalem is at the very northern boundary there of the land of Judah, right on the edge of that little tiny yellow circle that is Benjamin right there, okay? Um, so, and the boundary goes up to the top of the mountain that lies against the valley of Hinnom on the west and the north end of the valley of Rephim. Then the boundary extends from the top of the mountain to the spring of the waters of Nephetah, and from there to the cities of Mount Ephron. And the boundary bends around to Bala, that is Kirjath-Jerim. The boundary circles west of Bala to Mount Seir and passes along the northeast shoulder of Mount Jerim. Now, why is it so specific here? Why are there so many points of reference? Okay. Sometimes, just like in the United States, a river just runs the whole length and it's really easy. Other times, it's cutting along particular roads, through particular valleys, up along the slope of particular mountains. Why is it so detailed? Not just because these boundaries are going to mark out the tribe's territory so they can say, no, 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 you Benjamites, this is our land. But more importantly, because this is their assignment. All the way to the border, this is what you're responsible for, okay? And so the lines are drawn very specifically, okay? Verse 11, the boundary goes out on the shoulder of the hills north of Ekron, and then it passes and bends around Sikron and passes along to Mount Bala and goes to Jabneel, and the boundary comes to an end at the sea. What sea? The Mediterranean Sea, or as it's known in the Old Testament, the Great Sea. And the western boundary was the Great Sea with its coastline. This is the boundary around the people of Judah according to their clans. So first we're given the boundaries, 
And then verse 13, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave <coughs> Caleb the son of Jephthah a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. I love, just a side note here, I love how the author just pulls back the curtain a little bit more. So we already knew that Hebron used to be Kiriath Arba and that Arba was the greatest. Now we find out he's a son of the original Anak, of the Anakites, okay? He is, he is as significant. We weren't told that earlier. Now we have an even greater respect for Caleb. Shishai and Amon and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, and so we're given all the names of the Anakites that he conquered there, all the Anakite rulers. Um, verse 15, he went from there against the inhabitants of Deber, now, the name of Demer was formerly Kiriath-Sephir, and Caleb said, Whoever strikes Kiriath-Sephir and catches it, to him I will give Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. Okay, and so what does he say here? He says, The man who marries my daughter needs to take this place, needs to strike this city and take it for Israel. Now, that's not just him wanting a strong, militaristically bent son-in-law. Remember here, because of what we're dealing with, he wants a son of faith. He wants a husband for his daughter who believes in the Lord like he does. Remember again that Israel are not skilled warriors with the upper, you know, the, um, upper crust of modern warfare technology. They're intentionally limited from those things, okay? Any weapons they have are weapons from past battles. They're old and they're rusted. They're not, there's no forge. There's no, you know, there's no building of these things. It's what was laying around that all of these slaves come and conquer Israel with. And so when somebody has uh, the courage to do this, their courage is in the Lord, and that's what he wants for his daughter. And so he sets this standard, and we find out, verse 17, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it, and he gave Aksa his daughter as a wife. Now notice that. Othniel is the son of Kenaz. And so either we have the mystery resolved to Caleb the Kenazite, and they share an, an ancestor, or he's further down the genealogy, and he's, uh, he's a generation beneath. Um, either way, though, it's Othniel. Now, maybe you've heard that name before because Othniel goes on to be another of the judges of Israel, okay? So not only is this a man who does one faithful thing one time, but he eventually becomes a leader and a deliverer in Israel in later battles. And so we can read about him. Judges 1, 13, right around there, retells this story for us. But then um, in chapter 3, we actually find Othniel on the scene working and serving to deliver um, deliver Israel as God's representative. And so Judges 3 verse 7, the people of the Lord did, or people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushran Rishim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rithium eight years, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Uh, side note, once again, the words for brother and son in Hebrew are ambiguous. They're big enough to be more than just my immediate brother, but also my cousin uh, or my nephew even. Um, so it doesn't really solve the mystery here, but nonetheless, a close relation. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishim 
the king of Mesopotamia in his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cush and Rithium, so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So the point being here, Caleb draws this line in the sand and says, this is what I'm looking for in a son-in-law, and in doing so, he rightly recognizes someone that God later lays his finger on and says, this is what I'm looking for in a deliverer. Okay? And so what we're seeing here is a heritage of faithfulness. And it doesn't just end with his son-in-law. Notice what happens next. Verse 18, when she, this is Aksa, his daughter, when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing since you've given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And so now his daughter comes to him, and what does she want? She wants more inheritance, okay? And remember once again that this isn't the spoils yet. That's not where we are. This is land to be conquered. But she's seen what God has done for and through her father, and she wants a piece of the action, and she's not afraid to go out and take it. And so he gives her and her family a new assignment. And because of that, they have the upper and lower springs, okay? Now, I don't know if you guys have ever thought about water rights. This is one of those things that as a kid you don't realize. Um, but for example, um, Colorado is the only state in the United States that 100% of its water comes from Colorado, comes from its own state, okay? In fact, most of the water that begins in the Rockies, like the Mississippi River, flows to all the other states. They're, the source water is in Colorado, okay? And so this is a thing, like I said, as a kid, I never thought about. But if you have property with a river, if your water rights aren't secure, then what happens if the guy up front dams off the river and you no longer have a river anymore? What good is it to have a right to a place where a river runs if you have no control on what happens upstream, okay? And so this is something that cities and uh, uh, municipalities and states have to fight for all the time. When it says here that she has the upper and lower springs, it's the whole length of water, okay? She wants security that is not going to be risked even by anyone else's unfaithfulness, okay? That's, that's why it talks about both the upper and the lower springs. Now we get back into the inheritance. Verse 20, this is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah according to their clans. The cities belonging to the people of Judah in the extreme south towards the boundary of Edom were Kabzeel, Eder, Jagar, Kina, Dimanoah, Ada, Kadesh, Hazor, Ithnan, Ziphor, Talim, Baloth, Hazor, Hadath, Kiriath, Hezron, that is Hazor. Okay, that's that third fortress city I mentioned. Ammon, Shema, Molda, Hazor, Gada, Heshmon, Beth Pelay, Hazor, Shul, Beersheba, Baizothalah, Bala, Ema, Ezem, Altadad, Chezel, Homra, Ziklad, Mamna, Sansna, Lebeoth, Shilhim, Ain, and Rimen in all 29 cities with their village. Now notice he's keeping count here. Okay, and now he moves on from the southern land uh, to the lowland, verse 33. In the lowland, Eshtal, Zora, Ashna, Zenoa, Engamim, Tepeka, Anim, Jarmuth, Adalim, Soka, Azekah, Sherim, Adathim, Gedra, Gedothrim, 14 cities with their village. Now, if you're curious, I studied each and every one of these significantly so I could get the pronunciation right, as I'm sure you believe. Uh, 37, Zenon, Hashta, Migdalgad, Dilian, Mishpath, Jokil, Lashith, Boketh, Eglon, Kabon, Lama, Chitlish, Gedaroth, Beth, Dagon, Namath. There's another name for a god, okay? Beth means house. Dagon is the god that has a, he's like a reverse mermaid, 
That's how he's represented. And so instead of being fish on the bottom and human on the top, he's human on the bottom with a fish head. This is the one um, that falls before the Ark of the Covenant and breaks its neck uh, later on. But this is the city they capture is called the House of Dagon. Nema, Makeda, 16 cities with their villages, Libna, Ether, Ashen, Iptha, Ashna, Nezib, Kela, Axib, Mershna, nine cities with their village. Now, why are we taking the time to read all these? It's kind of like the credits at the end of the film. Okay. If you're in the industry, you stay for the credits because you know that this is the only notoriety, this is the only recognition they get. These names were significant to the people of Israel, so it's worth reading even if reading poorly. 45, Ekron with its towers and villages from Ekron to the sea and all that were by the side of Ashdod with their villages. Ashdod with its town and its villages, Gaza its town and its villages to the brook of Egypt and the great sea with its coastline. And in the hill country, Shamir, Jatir, Sako, Dana, Kirath, Sana, that is Debir, another renamed city that used to be named the city of Sana, right? Anab, Eshtemoth, Anim, Goshen, Holon, Gilo, 11 cities with their villages, Arab, Dama, Eshen, Janim, Beth, Tepa, Athica, Hamtha, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, and Zior, nine cities with their villages. Maon, Carmel, Ziph, Jeddah, Jezreel, Jodakim, Zanoah, Cain, Gibeah, and Timnah, ten cities with their villages. Howell, Beth Zur, Gedor, Merath, Beth Anon, and Eccleton, six cities with their village. Kiriath Baal, that is Kiriath Jerim, and Rabbah, two cities with their villages. In the wilderness, Beth Ereba, Midin, Sekba, Nishban, the city of salt. That's a cool one. And in Gedi, six cities with their villages. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah in Jerusalem to this day. Which, once we get to David, will be remedied, will be rectified. But notice here, they go into the land, they have the whole inheritance, but they don't finish it off. And so there's this remnant of enemies left in the land. Now we move on to um, the two half-tribes. Remember, one of them already has land on the east side. The other one hasn't received any land at all, and that's who comes first. So chapter 16, verse 1. The allotment of the people of Joseph went from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho, into the hill country to Bethel. Then going from Bethel to Luz, it passes along Adaroth, the territory of the Archites. Then it goes down westward to the territory of the Japhelites, as far as the territory of Lower Bethron, then to Gezer, and it ends at the sea. Okay. Now if you look on our map there, you can see Manasseh once again is the green one um, to the left of the River Jordan, and then right beneath them, that reddish blob is Ephraim. Okay. So it's just drawn out this whole land here um, <coughs> in the middle. And then it splits them up between the two, between Ephraim and Manasseh. So verse 4, the people of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. The territory of the people of Ephraim by their clans was as follows. The boundary of their inheritance on the east was Adaroth Adar as far as upper Beth Horon. The boundary goes from there to the sea. On the north is Mikmethah. Then on the east boundary turns around towards Tanah Shiloh and passes along beyond the east of Genoa. And it goes down from Genoa to Adaroth and to Nera and touches Jericho, ending at the Jordan. From Tapa, the boundary goes westward to the brook of Cana and ends at the sea. Once again, that's the Mediterranean. Such is the inheritance of the tribes of the people of Ephraim by their clans, together with the towns that were set apart for the people of Ephraim, with the inheritance of the Massonites, all those towns with their villages. However... 
they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Now that sounds better. Okay, so they're here, but they're now servants of Israel. But the problem is, half obedience isn't obedience at all. This is why when Samuel comes to King Saul, and Saul rushes out and he says, Behold, I have done everything the Lord commanded me. And Samuel goes, Well, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? And Saul goes, Well, okay. So I know we were supposed to devote all of the spoils to the Lord, but the people, they had this great idea that instead of doing that, we should keep them and we can make them as offerings to the Lord. And then he finds out that also... King Agag, the king of these enemy people, is also still alive. And he says, Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. You can call it worship all you want, but your obedience has fallen short, Saul. And because of that, none of Saul's sons will reign over Israel. Now, unfortunately, that's not the end of Saul's failures, but it's one of the clear beginnings And so here they're like, well, we can put a cap on it. We can keep them safe. They're only servants, but it's still going to come back to haunt them. It's still going to cause problems. Let's finish up here, just chapter 17 tonight. Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn to Joseph, to Macher, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of the Gileads. uh, Father of Gilead were allotted Gilead and Bashan because he was a man of war. And allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans, Abiezer, Helek, Azrael, Shechem, Hefer, Shemda. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, by their clans. Now, Zelophehadad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, son of Macher, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And the name of his daughters are Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the leader said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, for these five sons, and then for this one son who had no sons and had five daughters. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. In other words, eastern Manasseh is all a single son of Manasseh's territory. Why? Because he was such a man of war. He could take the whole thing. And so the rest take a portion in the land, including these five women, who because they, uh, because they had no brothers, their father's inheritance in the land was going to be nil. And so God clarifies to Moses, if there are no sons, then give it to the daughters to pass on to their children because everyone gets a piece of the land. And so the women remind them of this promise and find their inheritance in these days. Verse 7, the territory of Manasseh reached from Asher to Michmath, which is east of Shechem. The boundary goes along southward to the hand, uh, inhabitants of Entapa. The land of Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but the town of Tapua on the boundary of Manasseh belonged to the people of Ephraim. That's that southern border we can see on the map there. The boundary went down to the brook Cana. These cities to the south of the brook among the cities of Manasseh belonged to Ephraim. The boundary of Manasseh goes on the north side of the brook and ends at the sea. 
the land on the south being Ephraim's and that to the north being Manasseh's with the sea forming its boundary. On the north, Asher is reached and the, on the east, Ishakar. Those are two more tribes, okay? So instead of tracing out the boundaries here, it just says on these sides, they're boundaried by Asher and Issachar, which we'll learn about next week. Also, verse 11, in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Beth Shean and its villages, and Iblim and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Endor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Tanakh and its villages, and the inhabitant of Megiddo and its villages. The third is Naphath. And so in other words here, outside of that boundary or reaching beyond it, there's a couple of exceptional cities beyond the boundary that they also inherit, okay? Um, similar to this. If you drive to Boise, okay, um, Boise is actually the border town of, is, of, of Idaho, but the time change doesn't actually follow the boundary of Idaho like it does on a map. It, it actually happens in Oregon about 30 miles west of that border. And the reason is pretty obvious, because how terrible it would it be to live in a suburb of Boise and cross a timeline on your way to work? And so even though on the map the timeline goes straight, it actually fudges out around Boise so that it doesn't cause practical problems, okay? In the same way here, there's a boundary that's drawn, but there's these exceptions to it just because of the way that cities lay out on the map, okay? Now, verse 12, yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. And so more of the same here, okay? Um, and then finally, let's look at this story, and as we read it, ask yourself this. Is this story about the people of Joseph similar to Caleb, or is it different? Okay, verse 14. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people? Since all along the Lord has blessed me. And Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephraim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Okay. And so they come and they complain, and they actually make a little bit of a play on their name. If you remember, Joseph names his sons because God has been so faithful to him in Egypt, and so actually one of his sons' names just means fruitful. Okay. And so they say, God has blessed us. We truly are fruitful. How come our territory is so small? Now, side note, it's really not. Okay. Ephraim's is relatively comparable to the other tribes, but Manasseh has a large portion of land on both sides of the river. Okay. And the second thing to note here is when Joshua speaks to them and says, since there's so many of you, go into the forest and clear for yourselves the land of the Perizzites, the Rephraim, and the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Most likely, this is in the land they've been allotted. And so they're saying, there's too many of us for the land, and he's saying, that's because you haven't finished conquering it yet. They've stayed in the lowlands, and they say, this part, we don't want anything to do with. Give us an easier portion. That's what they're saying here. Okay. Verse 16, um, the people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us, and then we get their real complaint. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshan and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. 
Now, like we talked about, Israel in the south is very mountainous, so nobody had chariots in those lands. But when Israel moves into the northern territory in chapter 11, they suddenly face against chariots, and God not only wipes out the charioteers, but makes them hamstring the horses and destroy the chariots. They don't become part of the arsenal. But now that, uh, that Manasseh and Ephraim are on their own, they go, we can't do this. It's unfair. The rest of the tribes, they're just fighting average people, but we have charioteers. We're outranked. You're calling us to do something impossible, is what they're saying. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you're a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have only one allotment, but the hill country shall be yours, for though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders, for you will drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Now, as far as we know, this never actually happens. In fact, we already read that they failed to utterly drive out the Canaanites. But Joshua just reiterates their God-given destiny. And he speaks it as a blessing. He just says, you will do this, because in God, they're fully capable. And we'll find also in the book of Judges that this reality of chariots restrains Israel's ability to inherit the land, not because the chariots are stronger, but because they just don't have the faith to believe that God can overcome such a significant disadvantage. It's intriguing to me uh, that we have this story in the middle of the assignment. So we have Judah and Manasseh with Caleb in the beginning, and then we have the rest of the smaller tribes following this story of the complaint of Joseph, and then we have Joshua. And so for these two positive examples on both ends, we also have a negative example here. And it's, it's, a, um, it's a humbling example because it sounds a lot like history repeating itself. It sounds like the ten spies all the way back in Kadesh Barnea saying, the land is great. It really is, but the enemies are too much for us. One of the things that I think Joshua wants to convey to Israel is this reality that's intention of a sovereign God who gives promises and our choice to believe or not to believe, our choice to follow as far as we can. And as much as when Samuel unifies Israel and fights against the Philistines and sets up this stone this stone of Ezra, this memorial stone that says, we have fought them to this distance, they will never take this land back again. So also are we capable of setting our own stone and saying, this is far enough. I've trusted God far enough. The rest is too hard. It's too difficult. It's a bridge too far. There's a reason why interpreters of Joshua have always found significant application, even for our non-militaristic lives, uh, it's because although we may not be called to conquer a promised land or to be a vessel of God's judgment, uh, we still are called to hear God's promises and to believe. We're still called uh, to do this, and God is incredibly sovereign. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But at the same time, when we look at the, um, the exhortations of Scripture, what is it? It's onward and upward. It's press in. It's take hold. Forget the things behind and keep on the move. Do not neglect the promises God has given. Don't drift away from your salvation. I don't really feel a need to resolve those tensions. They're clearly there, 
But for us, our portion is clearly evident. And the author of Joshua wants us to see that God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. They're there for the taking. That any battle we say, I'm not enough. I'm not significant enough. I can't overcome this. I'm just going to bear this the rest of my life. Without God, nothing is possible, as Jesus says. But in God, all things are possible. That's one of the great messages of Joshua, even though it comes with both positive and negative examples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it feels um, dry and difficult and foreign. Because we know, Lord, that as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things were written down as our examples. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to follow in the footsteps of Joshua, who in just a few short weeks to the people of Israel and to us will say, choose this day. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I pray, Lord, daily and regularly we would make the decision, the same decision, that we would be like Peter and say, but Lord, nobody goes fishing in the day, yet because of your word, I will do so. May we be like Job when we don't understand, when nothing makes sense, and say, even if he slays me, yet will I trust him. We thank you, Lord, that it's not about the ability of our faith, but the ability of the God we believe in. And so I pray, Lord, that even our, our mustard seed faith we would know is sufficient, that even if we have to pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, that we can be confident that you are the God who fights for us. Help us to grow in that and take more territory for you in our hearts and in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.